0: Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus. GCN Plus is the place to watch all the best live bike racing and some excellent cycling films too.
1: You can catch all of your favourite monuments, classics, grand tours and much more live and ad free on GCN Plus including Milan-San Remo on Saturday the 19th of March and the Tour of Flanders on Sunday the 3rd of April. As well as the live action, you'll have access to on-demand highlights, replays and unrivaled analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Adam Vlive.
0: Then, after the racing, GCN Plus has a library of over 100 exclusive documentaries exploring the full breadth
1: of the cycling community for you to tune into. All UK listeners to the Cyclist Magazine podcast can currently get 25% off an annual GCN Plus subscription all you have to do is head to gcn.eu slash cyclist25. That's gcn.eu slash cyclist25. Hello, welcome along to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Joe Robinson. Joining me at the other end of the microphone is Mr. James Bender. Hello James, how you doing? On today's episode we have an author, a journalist, a podcaster and many many other things, Mr Richard Moore. He's a columnist and cyclist, he presents the cycling podcast, you know his work, I don't have to spell it all out for you. But before we get into our conversation with Richard, which is very interesting indeed, James and I are going to run through some of the things we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. James Bender, how you doing, mate? How you been? What's up?
0: What's up? Um, I've I've been experiencing a roller coaster of human emotions. Right. Okay. As you can tell by the monosyllabic tone of my voice,
1: monosyllabic—that's not the right word. Anyway, uh, yeah, no, I hurt my leg doing some running. Ah, oh, that's annoying. You were telling me before, off off air listener, that it's his calf. He's got a tight calf, so I've sent him a few YouTube tutorials on sort of warm-up routines.
0: Yeah, Joe's kindly sent me a bunch of videos that I'll probably never actually watch because stretching is just really hard. Like Stretching is just the most annoying thing, which is why we're all in such terrible shape. But I also blame um, whoever invented it. It's probably the ancient Mesopotamians because they invented pretty much everything, it seems. They invented running. No, they invented uh, chairs, I reckon. They invented the wheel. so let's give them the chair as well. Chairs, I was once told by a physio, are the worst invention that mankind has ever come up with. They put you in
1: Worse than the Nuclear Bomb.
0: <laughs> worse than the nuclear bomb, yeah, because nuclear bomb at least will just take us all out in a horrible ball of sad fire. Yeah. But a chair, you know, chairs chair chair is the um it's the kind of like it's the insidious disease on humanity because it's just slowly crippling us one back problem at a time and in so doing also putting huge strain on the NHS.
1: I heard a horrible story once of someone who over years of sitting down and having his wallet in his back pocket had completely misaligned his spine and basically given himself like chronic back pain for the rest of his life simply because he would sit down having had a wallet in his back pocket.
0: I've heard that same story. I mean, not from the same person, it's I It's an think. old
1: wives' tale. <laughs> it's an old wives' tale, wearing. yeah. <laughs> never sit on your wallet. I work, no, I worked
0: with, work with a dude uh, years back who was probably seriously my senior. He was like his in his 50s um, and he had chronic bad back pain, went to a physio, swears blind that the physio said, literally, Tony, just take that wallet out of your pocket and don't have it in your back pocket. Uh, and within a matter of weeks, it subsided and never, never did it rear its ugly head again. But I did cla- I did cross reference that with an actual physio and she said that's absolute nonsense. Fair enough. But I can imagine but if you've got
1: a chop. Whose word are we to take? I take the I take the side of the best story and that's the wallet. That's the wallet, yeah. For your calf pain James, can I recommend something for you? Yeah. This. Uh it's Premax warm up cream. It's basically like an embrocation, right? And I've, as we, as all the listeners know, I've been doing a lot of running recently. And before any workout, now whether it's riding, running, football, I will rub this into because I have the similar to you. I have issues of shin, my shins, and with my calves. It all stems from from splinting. It all it all stems from having basically two tight. Your calves are too tight, so you need to release them before you do the exercise. And I will rub this cream. Into the pressure points around my calf before any exercise. I also do it for my knees and for my quads when I ride and for when I play football. And I, it genuinely has made a big difference for me. I think the the stretching routine is obviously the majority of what's helping there, and I think it's what will help you and your calf issues. But I think you would not be amiss to invest in some of this Premax cream. And also, it smells delicious. Very good. That was. I think this is. I'm.
0: I'm with you. And one of, one of my. This. This. Um. Is a terrible thing to admit to. One of my happiest moments in life was my old housemate's girlfriend used to stay with us quite a lot, and just used to use all of the toiletries, willy nilly. Um. And I'm. You know. I'm. I'm a. I'm a sharing person. And then one day, heard a little call up from the bathroom, spender can I use your moisturizer? And I was like, yeah, go on then. And then a little bit later, massive scream. Because what she'd done is she picked up the Raffa Ambrocation Cream, which I keep in the bathroom cupboard, and she rubbed it all over her face.
1: (laughs) Oh, poor girl.
0: Yeah. Anyway, so that's a terrible thing to admit to, isn't it? But, you know, at least her face was nice and released for the activity of sleeping. (laughs) Yeah, she's <laughs> real loose. Yeah, super loose. Uh, so, anyway, um, yeah, so that's probably, I kind of chalked that up to something that I'm not liking so much. But even worse than that, this is awful, awful news. Now quite old, I've got to say, but we had an email from uh, a uh, a listener called Shan, um, and it was a link to the story. Um, I'll read you the email, actually, because it's very short. Uh, Hi, James and Joe. I've been enjoying your podcast. Thank you, Shan. She was just listening to episode four. Episode four? Do you remember episode four? That was a long time ago. Did a Google to have a look at the Sauna Diana bus and found this link. Now, to refresh your memory, the Sauna Diana bus was the original, literally the original team bus, fourteen buses, and it was named after, uh, effectively, a brothel in a little town on the border of Belgium, but on the Dutch side, because the owner owners of the brothel's children were... Really, very promising cyclists, and they had a bit of money, and they thought it's ridiculous that these kids are getting changed in cars and in car parks. And do that. why don't we have a massive moving thing for them to change in? We'll buy a London bus, we'll paint it up, and we'll put our massive branding on the side, which was big naked woman. And that bus became the stuff of legend. It ended up going to the TVM team. Had Phil Anderson on it. It went to MG, um, MG G M
1: Magnifico.
0: Yes. Which um,
1: in a kind of yeah, like Museo Road for.
0: Yeah, and in a strange twist of fate, had Mario Cipollini changing on a bus with naked women on the side. Um, Shan's story was that the bus has been burned down.
1: Got burnt out, or it got? Yeah, it got. Arson. It was a subject of an arson attack. Well, I
0: mean, yeah, you don't. You burn down a building, you burn out a car, but it, yeah, apparently, according to local news, uh, it was believed to be arson, uh, and it was on uh, the, 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 just tail end of tail end of last year. So that would have ruined that would have ruined our Christmases oh. had we have known about that. Yeah, that would have sullied the mood. Yeah, so that well, I was sad to, to learn of of that. But if you would like to hear uh, us talking about Sawadana. Then uh, I'd only listen to what we just said because episode four. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure if we're very good at podcasts.
1: Then we possibly still not now. No, we were definitely a lot worse back then. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so anyway, um, but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of me. But life, yeah, life ain't all bad. And uh, another new bike has crossed my palm with its silvery expression of kind of translucent paint. It's a Basso Diamante, lovely name. Um, it's in, it's probably, I don't know, third or fourth generation of the Diamante bike. And unlike the, uh, Cinelli that I chatted about the other day, it's completely opposite. It's mega stiff. It's mega stiff. Right. Um,
1: Has it still got that sort of headset stem that's like recessed into the, the Yeah, frame? yeah. So
0: you can, you can literally slam the stem so far down that it actually goes into the frame and kind of the top tube. Runs um, flush over the top of the stem, and the stem's minus 11 degrees, which basically means it kind of points towards the floor, so it puts the bars even lower. So it's unashamedly very Italian in its kind of um, aggressiveness. I totally let down by a really poor set of wheels that came with it, but I flipped out the wheels for another pair, and the bike just came alive in that way where it just feels like a I hate the phrase, but it just feels like a kind of I'm not even going to say it actually. It feels like a very uh, well honed sprint machine, um, but yeah, that phrase would have been a feels like a weapon. I hate that phrase. A
1: sports car. A sports. A sp- yeah, it feels like, a sports does it feel car. like. Does it feel like? Does it feel like getting out firing. of a uh, of a really well put together Volvo V60 into a? I don't know an Alf. To know I don't really know much about cars. <laughs> <A> Ferrari, <laughs> yeah, as it turns <laughs> out. Yeah, it just feels—it just feels like a fast bike, good. basically. That's good, and
0: it looks pretty amazing because it's got this super beautiful paint that goes all spangly in the sun. So that's nice. So I like that. Anyway, enough about me and sauna dana and brothels and diamantes. How about you?
1: Well, this heat cream. Really enjoying it. Oh yeah, it. oh the heat cream. We spoke about that. Really lovely. Smells beautiful. I speak about it all the time, but that's because I What's really like it. Smell like bit like old spice. Bit bit of that. It's got that vibe. It's not old what? spicy, but it's got lime, grapefruit, and sweet orange in it. Bit of sheer butter as well. So I'm really into that. I'm really into water at the moment. For 26 and a half years of my life, I barely drunk it. Oh yeah. I drink squash and soft drinks like a chump. That's terrible for your teeth. Yeah, I know. I know. But I've really got into, I've really started to appreciate water. And I now, when I go out bike riding, I, it's always, it's all always I'll put in my bottles, really. Unless I'm doing like a real epic ride. If I do like a really long sporty, I might pop in like a, a an electrolyte tab uh, for all those sorts. Ooh. Ooh. Um, although the thing I don't like is apparently I say the word water weirdly. Um, it's because you're from we, Kent. Well, no, I don't say it like I'm from Kent. What it stems from is that for most of my life, I say, I used to say water. And people would go, that's not how you say that word. Where's the T? Where's the R? You know, it's just how we speak where I'm from. It's water. But I became so conscious of the fact that I said water that I started to say water. And now I sound like I'm from the north. So I live near a shopping centre called Blue water. And I can't say it right. I can't say it, I, it, Blue water. I can't say it. You say it. Blue water. Sorry, say, it, say it normally. Blue water. <laughs> say it again. Blue water.
0: Blue water. So, blue water. So, blue, <laughs> you, you sound like a um uh, Duolingo tape. And now? Blue water. Blue water. Blue water. Oh, lovely blue water! You say uh, blue water. I'd, I'd imagine, yeah, blue water. It's because of it's because the way that we speak dictate, has dictate dictates the way that the muscles in our jaw form. So you're basically, and
1: I can't say certain words properly.
0: You won't be able to. You'll never be able to. Have to go through an intense program of rehabilitation for your lower mandible if you ever want to pronounce the words blue
1: water. And now I'm really conscious when I say blue water around people. Well, how often do you go to blue water? Oh, quite often. I live basically next to it. Home of outlet shopping. No, there's no outlet. That's Ashford. What? That's Ashford. He used to have Blue Water used to have loads no, of no, shops. No, no outlets in there. You're thinking of Ashford, I'm oh, thinking by, of Bister Village up in Oxford, oh, or Chester. Now you're talking. But, Chester. Never been that far. But yeah, that's one thing I'm not liking is the fact that I can't say that word. Um, okay. And I can't spell guarantee, but that's a different story altogether. Uh, let's get into today's episode, which is with a man who probably can spell guarantee uh, because he's a very good journalist and author and a good podcaster, and it's Mr. Richard Moore. So, a smorgasbord, which we were just discussing off air, is a sandwich with lots of different toppings on top. And, Richard, you're a bit of a smorgasbord, I think, because I did. A sandwich. A sandwich, well. An open sandwich with lots of different aspects to it because I was, we were doing a bit of research before you came on, as we always do for our guests, and you are a journalist, an author, a podcaster, a columnist for Cyclist Magazine, no less, uh, probably the best column you write, a former bike racer, a Scot, a Scot living in France, a dad, and probably many other things, which is many more things than what James and I are.
2: Well, I, definitely the um, the column of writing cyclist magazine is definitely the best one I do because it's the only one I do. Although, even if it wasn't, I'm sure it still would be. Exactly. I'm, I am all these things. Although, actually, I live in France now, and I'm not technically allowed to call myself a journalist here because I don't have a professional qualification. So, in France, there are very strict rules about you know what you can what you can call yourself. Um, anyone in the UK can call themselves a journalist as I did for many years. Um, here in France, you actually you need to come up with a creative job title um, to fit into the French bureaucratic system. So I, I can't even remember what I'm technically called, but it's not a journalist. So I am uh, just feel like I'm, I'm still masquerading as a journalist somehow.
1: Well, masquerading is, you know, not a kind of way of putting it because you are one of the the most experienced writers in the cycling stable, I'd say. So again from my research I was looking at some of the things you've contributed to. So obviously Cyclist magazine which you do on a monthly basis, excellent column. Uh, all of our listeners probably read it every single word of it, it each month. Uh you worked for a lesser known magazine called Ruller with for some work as well, but we won't talk about them. But also <laughs> a huge stable of newspapers, stuff like Sunday Herald, The Guardian, The Times, uh The Scotsman, and then also you're an author. You've written some excellent books, stuff like uh, Heroes and Villains, Chris Hoy, um, and British Track Cycling Revolution. In Search, of Robert Miller, um, Slaying the Badger, which is probably one of the great cycling books, if we do say so ourselves, and a few books outside of cycling as well. Um, And then obviously in 2013, uh, you launched the Cycling Podcast, which is the the elder of all of the cycling podcasts, to which we all look up to you, uh, and we... We sort of look at you in awe, yourself, Lionel Burney and Dan Freib, who launched that what's that now? Almost ten years ago. Almost going to be celebrating a decade in the podcasting space. To which you've, you know, won awards and you have a spin-off episode, the Cycling Podcast Femina, about women's racing as well, which is amazing. Um, but let's take it back, Richard, and start from the beginning. Can you remember the first bike race you were sent to report on?
2: Poo. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much sense to report on because uh, another another thing I've never been is a, a member of staff on any publication, apart from a business newspaper in, the, in, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, a business paper that lasted for two and a half years. It, it wasn't, ironically, a very good business, um, and it was a bad time to launch the newspaper, so it lasted two and a half years. Business AM, it was called, and that, that's been my only ever staff job everything else has been on a freelance basis so I I mean at the time I was hardly covering cycling at all because the idea that you could make a living writing or even talking about cycling was ludicrous um I was writing about doing lots of other sport football but also lifestyle features and other other things um uh but I was cycling was obviously my main interest because I'd been a cyclist myself in the 90s and um I was trying to you know shoehorn cycling stories into newspapers wherever I could so I was trying to get people interested in David Miller who was of course Scottish um, nominally but he would he, he identifies as Scottish so we'll take that David Miller was you know riding high he'd been in the Yellow Jersey at the tour in 2000 and in 2002 I'm trying to think remember what where his career was at but he was going through a funny phase in his life as we now know and I went to the Dauphiné to essentially not to cover the race, but just to interview him. And I'd set up, I think, with his sister, Fran, who was his manager at the time. Uh, and she said, oh, yeah, don't worry, you can get David one morning. Well, that proved more difficult than I had imagined. Um, even though I'd met him before, uh, he was very elusive. Uh, again, for reasons that we now kind of understand a bit more. and he, And when I did finally sit down with him, he was very cagey and... You know, I tried to obviously writing for a Scottish newspaper. I tried to really get him to um, express his Scottishness and uh, pledge his allegiance, but and wrap himself in a saltire. But he, he didn't metaphorically, but he didn't do any of that. And at one point, he said, "Oh, uh, uh, I'm a, I'm a citizen of the world," which is not what is not what the readers of the Scotsman wanted to hear, frankly so that was that was disappointing, but other other than that, I kind of followed the race and um you know, I made loads of mistakes because I didn't know how to cover a bike race, really, although you know I've been around bike races a lot um, and in fact, in one weird chapter, I was the d s for the Scotland team at the Ras in two thousand I don't know how I did that, so I drove a team car, but when it came to covering a big race in France, it was it was very daunting, and I didn't really know know where to go and when colleagues journalist colleagues were completely unhelpful in fact they looked on me with a certain amount of suspicion at the time and I remember that there was a stage Mont Ventoux and I was determined to go up Mont Ventoux but I got to the bottom of Mont Ventoux after the race had (laughs) passed so I drove up anyway uh, and then went for a run near the top but so you know I wasn't covering the race in a conventional way but it was the first race I went to as a journalist for a David Miller interview and I got about nine minutes of David Miller not saying very much and what he did say wasn't really what I wanted to hear so that was a roaring success and um, really got me off to flying start.
0: But that didn't obviously put you off um, and you have gone on to cover countless races and that's, a, that's the day for me. What was the first time uh, or which was the first rather grand tour that you kind of completed as it were? It was the
2: 2005 Tour de France, so Lance Armstrong's final one, final one that he didn't win. I'd gone to the 2004 Tour to watch it in the Pyrenees with some friends, and I think, having seen it a few times before, going there then, by that time I was a journalist, but I wasn't there to cover the race, and I think I felt when I was there I really want to be on the other side of the fence. You know, I really, I felt, on the outside, which is great and it was wonderful. And there are times now covering it as a journalist when I actually wish I was there as a fan because they look like they're having more fun uh, at times. Um, but then I really felt I want to be on the other side of the fence. I want to be in the race, not 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 standing by the roadside watching it, although we did have great, great fun. So 2005, I applied for accreditation. And again, by now I was just freelance journalist. So it was a massive gamble because... Nobody sent me. Again, I, I went there as a freelancer and um, I went with William Fotheringham who had got to know a bit and asked if I could go along with him and he very kindly said yes. And uh, it was quite a baptism of fire because again, you turn up uh, for a race like that and, and I was lucky to be um, going with somebody who'd covered it by then, you know, 15 odd times. So he really knew his way around. But he didn't really tell me you know you learn by osmosis almost how things work um nobody sits you down and says right this is how the starts work this is how you get to the finish and these are I learned you know just over the three weeks I think but you know it took several more years to really learn all the the tricks and all the things that you you don't do at the tour um uh, and it's it's the most difficult one to cover because if you make a mistake you really will pay for it you know if you go the, to the wrong place or Try to be clever uh, to get to the start by some alternative route than the one recommended. Then you really do come unstuck. So it, it was really interesting. William's taste in hotels was a little bit outside my budget, but I figured that I figured that it was worth the extra cost for the 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 benefit of going with somebody who, who was very experienced. But I, d- I don't know if. Um, I don't know if I broke even. I think I might have broken even, but I remember, I think it was that year um, because I did that for a few years, um, you know, went and paid my own way. But, you know, the first week was really difficult because I was struggling to get stories in newspapers or magazines. And there was one day where, again, looking for the Scottish angle on things, I think Stuart O'Grady and Robbie McEwen clashed in a sprint and one head-butted the other. And in, in Scotland, we call that a Glasgow kiss, you know, the headbutt. So I managed to persuade the Scotsman to take the picture and a story to go along with it. Um, you know, we, we in, in Scottish newspapers, they say if you can put a kilt on it, you can get it in the newspaper. So uh, that was a bit of a lucky break. But I did struggle to get the, the newspapers interested. There were, there were no British writers that year, actually, 2005, which is quite interesting to think about.
1: Your your experience actually sounds like you were riding the bike the bike race itself because you you need to know when to eat when to drink when to attack when to, when's the time to rest. You sound like you had a poor first week, which lots of people have in a Grand Tour before coming into your own in the last week. So you actually follow the weird symmetry to those who are on the bike.
2: I don't know if I did come into my own in the third week. I think I just got more and more bedraggled and was in the end quite glad to get home um, but it, it didn't put me off either because I've, I've been back every year since so um, I must have enjoyed it on some level I think.
1: In that first year was there any rider that gave you in turn, in a way a leg up so one of the things we want, we want to talk about later is that so much of our work as journalists, podcasters, authors are just based on what a rider tells us they can make or break your feature, your interview. And was there anyone in 05 that you went, wow, this has really given me some help because you've given me a few bits of gold in which I can actually turn a good feature here? Or you sort of realise someone that I can revisit you because you're going to tell me something interesting every day rather than just saying, yeah, it was hard um, and I'm going to go elsewhere now.
2: I'm struggling to remember. Um, what, what surprised me, I guess, was how open and accessible the writers were I'd been covering football for a while by now that was the main sport that I did in in Scotland and football even even kind of you know matches that weren't that glamorous shall we say um access was so restricted and so carefully managed and I was I was quite surprised to go from you know Brockville and Falkirk to one of the biggest sports events in the world Tour de France and find that actually The riders were incredibly approachable. Um, It's very fashionable in cycling and other sports to complain about press officers and lack of access and so on, but I I think it's still the case that we're incredibly lucky in cycling to have the access that we do. Okay, there are some riders who are difficult to get to, um, but, uh, you know, COVID aside, because that has, by, you know, for health reasons, restricted access, and hopefully it'll come back at some point. But we're really lucky to have the access that we do, and and to have the athletes that we do, because an awful lot of them are very articulate, thoughtful, and approachable. Uh, you know, there are there are a few exceptions to that, obviously, but a lot of them are. I mean, again, I don't want to sound like a one track record, but my my bread and butter in two thousand five was the Scottish media, and the Scottish media is like, very like a lot of small countries, quite parochial, and so we were. <laughs> I was looking for. Scottish angles and you know one one surprising one was Dario Cioni Italian rider now at Team Ineos as a, as a sports director I still know him very well but he was riding for liquid Gas at the time he was a pretty good rider and um, he had studied in Scotland at Strathclyde University as ridiculous as that sounds and uh, so I thought oh, I'm going to ask him about that so one morning I stopped him, didn't know him at all And he he stopped and chat. you know, he he had an aunt who lived in in Perthshire and he was very, very friendly and helpful and interested to have this conversation. This was about halfway through the tour. Um, And I I managed to spin that into about a 1500 word feature. It wasn't just about his term at Strathclyde University. It was also a kind of window into his world of, you know, riding as an Italian professional bike rider, Um, I like to think. Uh, you know, the, the, the Scottish angle was my was my shoehorn. Um, but I used that shoehorn as much as I could. Um, and, you know, that's one I remember, but I'm sure there were others. I think Brad McGee at the time was quite a an easy guy to talk to and, and very interesting and engaging. I'd, I'd actually done a big feature with him in 2004 when he'd written an open letter in response to all the, the scepticism and suspicion that there was about riders at the time around doping. He wrote an open letter inviting a journalist, any journalist, to come and live with him in Nice. And my editor at Scotland on Sunday was quite taken by that because I'd forwarded it to him, and he said, "Why don't you take him up on that offer?" So I did. I wrote to him and um, and asked if I could, and I didn't go and live with him, um, of course, but I did go and spend a couple of days there, and. I had carte blanche to ask him anything at all about doping, about what he did, what he thought other writers did, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure if that piece would stand up to uh, the test of time or stand up to scrutiny now, but it was, I was asking him questions that I felt were relevant at the time. Um, and it was, it was sort of quite brave of him, I suppose, to confront it in the way that he did. Um, and and uh, you know that was that was an interesting experience as well. So I kind of knew him a little bit, but otherwise it was just yeah, just feeling my way through the dark really in that first
0: tour. So how how do you think that kind of access has changed? And I hope within that as well that that piece on Dario Cioni got him an honorary doctorate at Strathclyde, and they recognise him for not the yet, tr- not yet. There's there's time, um, but and Doctor Dario Chioni. <laughs> But the idea that um, a journalist goes and shacks up with um, a pro rider for even a couple of days, that's kind of like almost the stuff of Rolling Stone magazine legend, where you just had incredible budgets to send reporters out on on tour with Iron Maiden or something just to document stuff. Now, I'm assuming that ain't the case these days. But how has that access to riders changed and why has it changed?
2: I mean, I didn't shack up with him. I should say it was. It didn't. You know, the the, the open letter was was very um, attention grabbing, but the reality, I didn't force the issue. You know, I didn't. I, I but I, I I felt it was more. It was more, as I say, carte blanche to ask whatever I wanted to ask because I don't know what else I would have got out of it from living with him. I wasn't going to go snooping around, or maybe I should have done, but um, I think how has it changed? I mean, I I think that in some ways it's better. Um, in some ways it's worse because at that time, you know, 2004 and then five, six, seven, eight, the writers became far more guarded. I said that it was, I was surprised when I went in 2005 at how open and accessible it was. And and it was, but there was also, and I picked this up more from journalists like William, who'd covered the, the tour for a long time, that, there was this weariness around questions about doping, questions that as we know now of course should, should and were asked should have been asked and were asked but um, there was a sort of a more of a kind of them and us uh, type of atmosphere, certainly around 2006, 7, 8 definitely those years and I don't know, I mean I, I still think though that cycling is one of the most accessible sports, Covid has changed that in the last couple of years because we're not allowed anymore at the moment to wander around the team buses and just grab riders as we as we as we see them which is what we always were able to do i think that will come back um uh but you know in some ways what the last couple of years has done is it's put a greater emphasis on the role of press officer and some people regard press officers as almost the enemy the gatekeeper's actually they're they're not necessarily they are there to help us as journalists as well and they've cu- they've come into their own in the last couple of years because the good ones and there are good ones and bad ones as in any industry or field the good ones can really in some ways have made the job a lot easier because we now as journalists we don't have to we don't you know if, if in in the old days which I, I do hope. Uh, maybe I'm contradicting myself here, but I hope they do come back. Um, but there didn't used to be a lot of organisation around stage starts in particular. Journalists would go and wander around the, the paddock, the team buses, and if you wanted to interview Sam Bewley, you would go and stand outside the Orica or Mitchelton bus until he emerged, and then you would ask him a few questions. That wasted an awful lot of time, you know? Um, and over over time... It, it, there there was a bit more organisation introduced as press officers would come up to you and say, who are you waiting for? Oh, I'll go and ask them if they're around. And that, that sort of helped to speed the process along. But what we have now is a, a mixed zone where the, the journalists are all congregated and rather than us going to them, they now come to us, which in in one sense makes it harder because writers can avoid you more easily. But in another sense makes it easier because if you have a, a wish list in the morning of, you know, three riders, especially if they're not three big stars, you, you can you can see them all without having to stand for 15 minutes outside each rider's bus, hoping that they hadn't emerged yet. So, you know, the, the good press officers can make our lives a lot easier. Um, and so th- there are good things and bad things about the current arrangements, I think, but um, I wouldn't, I don't know, I, I'd like to go back to a sort of hybrid model where we have that mix zone but also the freedom to walk around the buses and grab whoever we we want to grab because what we're missing at the moment i think are the off the record conversations with sports directors swanyers mechanics whoever um happened to be milling around and who who you might know you know from having bumped into them before
1: and, and as for a fan, a lot of the, for, for say, people like ourselves who who sort of write and, and report on these races, a lot of the context to the articles or the podcasts we record are done in those off-the-record moments. So, And it's not always sort of uh, insidious conversations off-the-record. It'll be kind of who's form, who other sport directors are saying, like, keep an eye on this rider, I'm hearing good things about him. And like you said, that's not not really happening as much anymore. So that sort of ear to the ground aspect that you could get when you sort of hung around a team camp or a, a bike race is, is kind of being lost. Um I also was wondering how what you think of the rise of in-house content. So one thing, and this is across sport in general, is as social media grows uh, and the internet becomes more important with how we interact with our favourite sports people, teams are realizing that they can create a lot of content themselves but in a way that's giving certain teams or certain aspects of the sport a way to bypass us because they don't need to use a journalist anymore to, to talk about their rider to talk about what they plan to do with the season they can just go to their own audience is that affecting things and is that setting scary precedents
2: yeah i mean to some extent i mean you know some teams do that very well Orica. Green Edge were the pioneers, weren't they, with backstage pass, and they they did it really well. That was that was a, a good product, but I just think fans need to be aware that when they're consuming, you know, that that sort of stuff, they are just getting the the team's own uh, perspective, the things they want you to see to some extent. Although some are more open than others, and and the more open, the better. But uh, you know, I think that the discerning fan will will we'll know what it is and hopefully will still regard um independent media as a better source of uh, you know a more rounded picture i suppose I mean it all i you know it always amuses me because you're probably the same but after every race my inbox fills up with press releases from each team um who send you a press release with you know you know cough this rider finished ninth today and it's all it's all about that well that doesn't really tell you very much about the race. And and that's also the case with video or audio content that teams produce. It, it just tells you one, it's one piece of the jigsaw that they're offering you. And it can be very interesting. You know, some of that content is great, and I watch it. Um, but, you know, an example two years ago, 2020, Jumbo Visma shot loads of footage. Or, of the Tour de France um, and handed it all over to NOS, the, the Dutch channel, to make a documentary. They made a very, very compelling documentary, albeit one that was probably a bit too focused on Tom de Moula because it was for a Dutch audience when, you know, Primoz Roglic was the, was the main story. But it was very good and it, it felt like an independent piece of journalism. I think Jumbo Visma were a bit um, slightly spooked by that and the lack of control they had over it. And so they they did their own version of that um, last year, and it was perfectly watchable, um, and it was available to watch through Umba themselves. You could pay a a fee, which I did, and I watched it, and I I enjoyed it. But, you know, I've had far more confidence in the the NOS version, you know, the the NOS documentary, because they weren't just uh, obviously picking out the stuff that would show the team in a good light. And I mean... Also the story that the team were telling last year was very different and it was a sort of how they they, they salvaged their their tour after Roglic crashed early on. So it was a different story, but I think those two films kind of do highlight the different approaches of uh, independent journalists and the team itself, and I know which I prefer.
1: One of my favourite things is, uh, like you said, you'll get a press release. This rider finished ninth today on the stage. And you'll get quotes from them and you'll read the quote and you'll, you'll be like, I can guarantee that that rider hasn't said that about today's race. And just some journalists will use that as verbatim of, I don't know, Guillaume Martin said this about today's stage of the Tour de France. And, and you, you, and there's some of that, that's, you know, for me, there's some of that mistrust there where we're expected to, that's what we have to use. We can't, like you said, get what Guillaume Martin actually thought about that stage today we've got to take this quote where he's just thanking his teammates and his ds for their support today
2: well you don't have to use it and I mean no and 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 we we don't we wouldn't you know And, and I think with even with we'd much rather speak to uh I think on the podcast especially we've we've Prioritised speaking to interesting riders with interesting things to say, not necessarily the, the biggest stars, but the the lower riders who um, are often well, they're 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 less um, in demand, so they're more easy to get to, and they often got more interesting things to say and a more a more relatable perspective as well. So um, yeah, I still think that you know I still think that exists. I don't think that there is the control or the management in cycling that there is in other sports. You still Um, you know we every year now we do we have riders keeping audio diaries for us at the Grand Tours and there's only one team that has insisted on being a conduit for that you know whereby um, they don't allow us direct contact with the rider and they they sort of control it, they don't control it because the rider still records his diary and just sends it through the press officer so it's no real difference um but with all the other riders um we have you know they just send the audio diary directly to us and the team has no involvement or it seems much interest um and that can be that can be brilliant but again I, i'm not i'm not sure that would happen in many other professional sports so i think we're quite lucky in that regard
0: who else within the team because obviously as you say there's um there are riders who will be potentially more candid because one might say they're less famous, so you know they want to get themselves out there and they're more affable um, to a request for an audio diary. But beyond that, when you say you're walking around the paddock, especially back in those early 2000s, who are those like key players in the business of cycling that really know what's going on and what are they telling you?
2: Well, I mean, you know, when, when we would wander around the Tour de France paddock, it'd be quite surprising people maybe, you know, a chiropractor on a team. What springs to mind? Um, who, who's a great source of just gossip? Really, I mean that's that's what it is. It's gossip. Um, another guy who always loved bumping into was Tim Harris, former British professional rider, now lives in Belgium, and he was for many years a driver with Skoda on the Tour de France, driving VIPs, and we'd bump into him every morning. And he really had his ear to the ground. He had interesting people in his car every day, so he would always get some interesting gossip from them. But he—he he was just—he had a nose for a good story, and uh, he was just a, a great guy to bump into every day. He was also really curious, so he wanted to know what was going on with so and so or that team. He's now a DS. He was a DS last year at Bahrain. Uh, the last two years at Bahrain. This year he's with EF Tibco um, SVB, the women's team. Um and yeah, he's he's a great guy to bump into. If, funnily enough, he's probably a bit. He you know when I saw him when he was at Bahrain, he was he was slightly more <laughs> guarded than he used to be as a as a driver because he's obviously a bit more restricted than what he can say. He probably knows a lot more now, you know, and, and so he can say less. But um, always enjoyed bumping into him. Uh, you know, the, the odd physio or 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 mechanic one of our funnily enough one of our friends of the podcast listened to a podcast we did on team dsm and was really impressed by Ivan speckenbrink um and his whole philosophy um this guy ran a bike shop i think in jersey i think anyway he wrote he got in touch with speckenbrink through linkedin and uh said that he obviously enjoyed hearing him speak and, and liked his approach to managing a team and if he was looking for a mechanic, he'd be very interested. Speckenbrink set up a, an interview with him, and he's now working for the team full time as, as a mechanic. So, um, looking forward to seeing him at a race, and I think we're going to get him to keep an audio diary for us as well, just for a different perspective. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's um, there are lots of people. Um, Matt Winston is somebody; he's at the DSM as well. He's always great to speak to. Matt, Matt White, Matt White is is absolute. An absolute goldmine.
1: Yeah, he wears his heart on his sleeve. Have you ever been on the? Has the show ever been on the other foot? I've had it where I've been asked by pros if I know something about a particular incident. And do you ever get it where you'll have a pro saying, "Oh, do you know anything about this or this rumor or this bit of gossip?"
2: Oh, absolutely. The the right. I mean, it's a bit like what I was just saying about teams and their press releases. A rider has a very limited view, often on the race and what's going on. Um, and I think it's sometimes assumed that they know everything and that they are part of some big sharing community. Which I don't know why people think that because, and you know, that's not how communities work at all. <laughs> it's not how people work. Um, and yeah, definitely, they they don't know what's going on. I mean, you mentioned in my book, Sling the Badger, um, about the the 1986 Tour de France and the the sort of internal team battle between Greg LeMond and Bernard Eno. You know, they were on the same team. And I went back and interviewed them and, and teammates and managers and so on. And after the book came out, I kept getting emails from people I'd interviewed, riders, who had learned loads about what was going on in that race that they hadn't known or, you know, things in their own team that they hadn't known. Um, Erz Zimmerman, who was third in that race that year, a uh, Swiss rider on a on a different team, wrote a long email afterwards, and he he hadn't known anything about what was going on, really. Um, so your 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 view, and especially as a rider, you're so kind of inward focused that uh, you don't really have the the bandwidth to be taking in certainly gossip or rumours or anything. I remember at the Welta last year, Joe Dombrowski was. You know, out out of contract at the end of the year, hadn't signed anything, and had had a vague promise from Astana, but wasn't sure whether that was going to come to anything. And he was he was quite unsure about the whole landscape and what might be available or not. And he was he was also asking if you know we'd heard anything or you know writers um, don't always have a a three sixty view even of their own careers. I think. Mm. But but it's, I think it's the same in any walk of life.
1: Very true. Um, yeah, because, I mean, there's, there's stuff that will happen with you, James, in the magazine. And I'll be like, oh, I didn't know that you were working on that. And we sit next to each other.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, you know, it needs to know basis. Don't distract. <laughs> yeah, don't distract me from the important art of writing with your foolish magazine politics. That's what you got to keep. The, you got to keep these riders' minds focused on the task. That's why, you know, no little information as possible. Just ride your bike. Maybe that's the key, the secret
2: link to that did a, a we did an episode with Ian Boswell and Lizzie banks together and we were we were talking about salaries and um, Ian said that he at team sky he had a clause in his contract or they all did they weren't allowed to discuss their salary with teammates
1: that's a, that's a very English way of looking at things because a British way because the discussion of salaries is very frowned upon here whereas in like place like Germany it's quite open although
2: he, he said that it was the case he, he thought in in all teams because there is this kind of secrecy around salaries, and they don't want one rider learning that another rider who might regard as his equivalent is earning, you know, 50 grand more or something. So I thought that was quite interesting.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that was a big thing. You'll know this, obviously, from uh, the in-depth research. You did for Slaying the Badger with Le that kind of hung, hung around his neck like a bit of an albatross, I guess. The first, you know, cycling's first million-dollar man. And maybe do you think people kind of uh teams learnt from that that it's not necessarily the best news to have it splashed all over the papers how much your star riders are earning?
2: Yeah, it's never really been part of cycling culture. Le Monde was an exception, um, and it did breathe quite a lot of resentment from people. Um and these these were always I mean, Bernard Tappy when he signed in for Lavie Claire did the same. I think he I think he uh, also tried to claim him as cycling's million dollar man but he'd offered him like royalty on the Luke pedals the clipless pedals that that he was producing uh, and Lamont never never saw any of that. So I, I think there were there were cre- you know there was it was a good headline but I'm not sure there was much substance beneath it.
1: Let's um let's move on to cycling now as in so, we've discussed how it's changed in terms of reporting and media, but Richard, as you said, you've been, it's now your 20, 20 year anniversary from your Dauphiné experience. So, congratulations. And in that time, cycling has changed an awful lot in many different aspects. But I think a good place to start with that is. Are we in a golden generation? So something that's getting bandied around at the moment is we've got Pogacar, Van der Poel, Van Aert, Pidcock, Roglic. Look at all this talent. We must be in a golden generation. But then I looked back and I was sort of thinking about this and you forget Merckx rode alongside the, the likes of Roger de Vlaminck and Freddie Martin. So that sounds pretty golden to me. And Kelly rode with Lamond and Cerrone and Hinault and Fignon, Moser. That also sounds pretty golden. So is it the case that we always just focus on the now and think that that's the best we've ever seen. I mean, it, I
2: think it's quite unusual to uh, regard the current age as a golden age while it's, you know, because these figures never match up to, it's, it's almost impossible to place Pogacar alongside Merckx, for example, although on results you would say there's definitely a case to be made. But I I, I do think that, you know, that, that, that it's a measure of, where the sport is at the moment and the quality of the riders that there are that we're starting to talk about some of those riders in the same breath as Merckx and Eno and Oncatil and, yeah, De Devlaminck and people like that, Mozart, because I think, you know, time will tell. Um, and, and with cycling's kind of history, you never, you never, you feel... Reluctant to, uh, you want you want the kind of fullness of time to make a judgment on somebody because you never know what kind of uh, surprises might be around the corner. But as far as far as we know, as far as we can tell, um, we're pretty lucky at the moment to be racing to be living through an era of really exciting racing. I mean, I think that for whatever reason. The racing has changed in the last few years. I don't know why. I don't think there's one reason, but the riders are are fitter, stronger, better prepared. Um, They're riding in a more aggressive way. We're seeing more interesting team tactics. We're seeing just more professionalism across the board from teams and riders. Um, I think the sport has really become, in the last three or four or five years, just more interesting. Um, and I don't know what started that. I mean, I remember Philippe Gilbert, the way he won Tour of Flanders. Um, maybe that was a catalyst. I, I don't know, but um, you know, with the likes of Philippe as well, Van Aert, yeah, th- these these are exciting riders who I can see um being the sorts of figures that you know de Vlaminck and and people like that were in the past.
1: Is it secular because we're in a period now where aggressive racing is being rewarded. So a style that's Ala Philippe or Pogakar, which is to be on the attack, is being rewarded. But, you know, if you look back ten years, for example, races were being won by those who rode conservatively. The likes of Bradley Wiggins. If you look at, for example, say John Dagenkobb, who when he ran won San Remo and Roubaix, they were they weren't swashbuckling 60 kilometer solo brakes. He kind of played his cards right and was the strongest. Are we going to be in a position, say, in another five years, maybe where being a defensive rider is again rewarded? Say, if you take a Filippo Ganna and he stayed, said, I want to become a grand tour specialist. And he was just like, I'll bank on taking a time out of everyone in the time trials and I'll just sit on the wheel. Bit like Induran did in the early nineties where it rewarded that bit more defensive style after the likes of Le Monde and Hino, which were much more attacking. I,
2: I think you've got to play to your strengths as a rider, and Wiggins won the Tour in the only way he could have won the Tour, and Deng won those races in the only way that he could have. Although I would say, actually, Pyro Bay, uh, he was quite dynamic in that race, and he had to he had to make certainly quite a few efforts before the sprint. But um, I, d- I don't know if it's a case of the 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 best riders now um are those kinds of riders, and so that's why we're seeing exciting racing or if there's something else going on and i suspect i think that it's got something to do with um the technology that's available now to riders and teams uh you know in terms of you hear especially from a lot of young riders and the the reason that's given for the fact that we're seeing young you know nineteen twenty twenty one year olds winning at such a young age is because they have the tools to understand their bodies, to train optimally. They don't have to do that same apprenticeship that riders used to have to do over three or four or five years, learning about training and racing before they they start winning. Um, They're being fast-tracked because of the technology that's available to them and the the fact they can learn from other riders. And I, I, I just think that, you know, when... Somebody, Gilbert, or or or, or someone else, um, or or Pogacar, you know, if he if he attacks with seventy kilometers to go, it's because he knows exactly how hard he can ride for seventy kilometers. And the the things that they're able to do in training, uh, you know, I follow Vanart on Strava, and I could, you know, you can see the training that he does. Um, that a lot of it is harder, I think, than the racing he does. And so when he hits out on the Mont Ventoux stage to to win that he's not, he's not there are no surprises for him in that effort he knows exactly what he's capable of doing um, and it's just about executing in a race and with the emphasis on training now the altitude training camps the fact they're racing less and training more uh, means that they're really in tune with their bodies and what they can do and they've realised that they can do quite a lot and they can they can make efforts in training that probably they weren't doing in previous ages
0: do what's i mean obviously this is impossible to know um because it hasn't happened yet but with riders coming into the sport as you say kind of fast tracking the apprenticeship um hitting the big time 19 20 um years of age what's your kind of hunch having followed cycling for this long would also followed other sports in terms of the longevity of those riders? Do you think they will be long-termists that can you know, win Grand Tours over eight or 10 years? Or will we see a lot of flashing in pans, ultimately, when we look back?
2: I mean, it's a really good question because will will careers actually be extended? I'm not so sure they will. Um, and in some respects, Pogacar is not that unusual. Okay, it's unusual to win the Tour as young as he won the Tour, um, but it's not unusual for the dominant grand tour rider of his generation to to not serve that apprenticeship. You know, Eno Eno's did serve a, an apprenticeship, but when he went to the tour for the first time, you know, he was capable of winning it. Marks, same. Greg LeMond, the same. Those guys were always... Injuring was a bit unusual. He did about, you know, f- five years before you know riding grand tours before he was capable of winning one um sort of caveat that because i think there's you know th- there are lots of questions about the 90s and and well not so much questions as as knowledge really um but riders at Laurel fignon you know the the the, the good the really good ri- grand tour riders were we were always capable of winning a grand tour and and pogachars fits that mold the the other pattern has been has been that often those riders and it's the same with Marks with Eno, um, their second or third Grand Tour win has been their best, and then they've 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 been a sort of steady, very relative decline, and I don't know. pogachar has not so far uh, put a, a foot wrong, um, but the test for him will be when something does go wrong for him and. Um, I don't know. I, I can't see him sort of still winning the tour in ten years. I think something will happen to stop that. I don't. I, I just. I don't think that's sustainable. But who knows? I mean, we had an interview with his coach a few weeks ago, Inigo samyan who, um, you know, is convinced that Pogacar is not at risk of burning out. That what he's doing is, is actually quite manageable. Um, but like I say, the test will be if he hits a hits a hurdle um either gets an injury or has a crash or or something goes wrong you know hope, hope that doesn't happen anytime soon, but it happens in every career um it happened to marx you know mark marx always said that he was never the same after a crash um on the track was it in nineteen sixty nine or seventy or you know very
1: sixty wasn't it yeah
2: very very early in his career. Um, he still won another several Grand Tours and all the other big races.
1: Even, even more, even more recently, if you look at Chris Froome after the crash in twenty fourteen, even though he goes and wins more Grand Tours, they're not as sort of aggressive as that first one he wins in twenty thirteen, which was kind of like a, a real flexing of muscles. And then the next few are kind of won on the basis that he defends chips away a couple of seconds and then was out time trialing people at the tour.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, there's an element of surprise as well when somebody bursts onto the scene. Um but there's prob- probably the yeah, the probably the, the the outstanding performance of Froome's career was Mont Ventoux in 2013, you know, and, and you could say from there on, there on it was downhill, but <laughs> it wasn't, of course. Or you know, the, you could say the Giro in 2018 might have been the performance of his career. I don't know, um, but but uh, yeah, I mean th- I think there's something in that, really and, and Eno was the same, Eno uh, you know, when he came along in, in 78 and 79, looked completely untouchable um, in 1980 he had an injury a knee injury, and a lot of people including Eno, say that he was never quite the same, he became a more defensive rider after that uh, it's all relative, he was still able to win lots and lots of races but uh, that's always a, a test of of a, a rider when, when something goes wrong. And nothing's gone wrong yet for Pogacar, but it will at some point.
1: Yeah, and I think that'll be the, the, the showing of whether he is a can be a great, I guess. It's like a, a similar one, not, well, not in a similar way, but it's like Peter Sagan, how now we're getting to the end of his career and we're kind of looking back on this guy that we once was like, he will be one of the all-time greats. And we're kind of label he's being kind of labeled as a, not a failure but certainly disappointing and not showing the prophecy once done which is harsh to someone who won three consecutive world titles um but I'm like I'm now looking at Peter Sagan and thinking oh you only won two monuments and that sounds really harsh but you compare that to like a Tom Boonen or Fabian Cancellara from the generation before who took seven and you kind of go wow where did it all go it, all flashed by and he looked so unstoppable 10 years ago when he came on the scene as a liquid gas rider
2: again same thing i I think he was at his best in a way in 2012 his first tour de france where he won stages and he made it look really really easy um but i think it's something again we've we've talked about i think his his impact is almost beyond his results in a way and he in a way he set the tone for what we're seeing now in the style of racing and and also in his emergence at such a young age you know when he came onto the scene and began winning at 19 I think or 20 nobody had done that for a long long time and since then a lot of riders have done it so in a way he's he's a bit of a pioneer in a way and I think I think his legacy will, will go beyond his just his results on paper.
0: So speaking of legacies there is There's a legacy, a very, very long one, attached to cycling itself that has been left to people that are way beyond, you know, over the boundary of being actual cycle fans. and Unfortunately, that is a kind of legacy of doping. Um, Do you think, you you know, if you still go into a a pub and tell tell someone you haven't met before, you're a cycling journalist, do you still get faced with those questions around, oh, go on then, you know, give us, tell us what's really going on? And do you think cycling a you can ever shift that but also b is it is it fair to have that leveled at the sport in the context of other sports um
2: yeah i mean you still get that reaction certainly um from people is it fair i mean i i always kind of resist that because i don't i, I resist those comparisons because i don't think if there's doping in other sports it makes doping and cycling okay you know um and, and if you're if you're concerned about cycling and 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 you're suspicious that something's going on or everything isn't as it seems then it doesn't it doesn't help to imagine that things are equally bad or worse in other sports really is it unfair It's not really unfair um in the you know context of what what the sport has been through what went on i don't know i mean i i do feel that gradually it's kind of moved away from that from, from it, it, it certainly there is skepticism around this claim but the doping culture that, that had cycling in its grip or that was, well, was part of the sport forever wasn't it That the technology that I was mentioning the, the, the things that, that riders are using now to maximise their performances to know more about their bodies to, to train better, smarter race less um, a lot of this has, I think, replaced what doping once once was, once meant and once brought to cycling. Now, you could still have all that plus doping, um, of course. And, you know, there are things that we, we, we don't know. And I mentioned earlier that when I asked Brad McGee all the questions I could think of about doping and whether he was clean and what other riders might be doing, I only had the knowledge then that I had at that point. I, I couldn't know what I would learn over the next few years. And that's always the case. We're always, you know, um, we, we didn't ask Bradley Wiggins about TUEs in 2012. We didn't. Um, if, if we could sort of go back, you know, in time and, 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 and ask the questions that we've learned about, in the years subsequent, then that would make the job a lot easier. The, the story with Bahrain last year and the medication they were using that isn't banned, but is is seems quite questionable. That, that, that gives you more information to, to help paint a slightly fuller picture or to try and understand better what might be going on. Um, there's a lot of chatter and ketones, you know, which again are not banned, but are considered um, controversial i don't know Uh, i I, you know we never we never do know the full picture and and nobody does you know and it 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 kind of um links to the earlier question about riders and what they know well nobody nobody has a a 360 view of what's going on and we're just trying to piece it piece it all together as best we can
1: and even down to the base stuff i was gonna say we had nathan Hass on the podcast recently and obviously he's giving up well tour racing to become a gravel racer and he's now a a privateer and he even down to the fact that he said i can't wait to not use shit equipment and how he would look across a peloton and even at someone using a set of shoes and you can extrapolate that up to you know like you said ketones there are some teams that have a, a red line we don't use ketones because we're because we believe that they are although not banned are sort of a gray area Whereas other teams are, are fully happy to use it as a supplement, and if you believe some of the report, some of the science into the into ketones, it would suggest that it is a a huge benefactor in improving a, in, in performance.
2: That then again, we had Inigo Samián Pogacar's coach on the podcast a few weeks ago saying that he believes they're detrimental to performance. That you know that they've done their research into it, and they don't they don't believe it. It, it, it assists performance at all. So there's, there's maybe smoke and mirrors around this as well um, and, con, and conflicting science.
1: We interviewed the inventor of ketones, didn't we, once, James, for a piece in the mag a few years ago and when it was developed for the U.S. Army. And they were very adamant that it would have no benefit whatsoever for those in endurance sports such as cycling. Which is interesting in itself, and the the way that the thing they were developed for—they sort of said the way that the cyclist body works over a Grand Tour, and the way you're intaking calories and and doing other stuff—it would have no benefit. So, but then, as we said, why would certain teams be investing so much money into it? Because it is an expensive investment. If they didn't have some sort of belief in their validity,
2: absolutely. I I mean, again, though, the idea the the idea that cycling now is this is this kind of closed community uh, where people are all part of a, a grand conspiracy to um to, to dope and to cheat is is wrong and um, so, you know and, and riders writer, themselves will ask you about things they've heard other teams are doing or might be doing um and often these are just rumors and scurrilous rumors no, nobody nobody knows the full picture you know, and our job is just to try and piece it together as best we can.
0: How difficult is it though on a personal level when you're piecing together those stories? And you know deep down, sadly that the appetite for a lot of people in reading any types of media is to find, it's that schadenfreude, it's looking for negativity, it's the salacious stories. Yet at the same time, the people on whom you're reporting are your comrades in a sense. Um, where where does how do you kind of square those two things away you've got a really difficult story that's going to potentially ruin somebody temporarily or maybe even forever who knows but also you you have a journalistic integrity to get it out there
2: The, the the thing is to not be emotionally invested in the people you're writing about um and so yeah and i've 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 Tackled this before more in in books. You know, I, I wrote the dirtiest race in history about the 1988 Olympic hundred meter final, Ben Johnson and Carl Lewis. And you know, in that in writing that book and researching it and doing interviews, you were you have to detach yourself from that process. And when you're writing the book, your your loyalty is to the reader of the book, not to the people you've interviewed. Um, and actually I find that quite easy to detach myself in that in that way and I, get, I don't think there are times when I've felt any conflict over that the the actions often speak for themselves I mean Ben Johnson is in, in a sense the villain of that, that book but in order to write the book I had to go and meet him and sit down with him and talk to him and he's been asked about that so many times that he's not you know he's not taken aback when you ask him about his doping and his cheating and how, how he did it and how he got away with it for so long. Um, so there's a sort of maturity to that exchange that maybe isn't always there. One of the, the most difficult interviews that I did with Lionel was with Dave Brailsford in, in the midst of the TUE's jiffy bag scandal. And there were so many questions swirling around and we arranged uh, an interview with him in a hotel suite in St Albans one one night, and I don't know, was it February or something? And you know, we knew we we knew Brailsford well, but we we only knew him as journalists. and and that relationship was always very clear, and still is. That there's a sort of line between you, and so it wasn't it wasn't hard really to go from maybe you know passing the time of day with him outside the team bus to then sitting opposite him and asking him these questions because it would have been absurd if we hadn't asked him those questions. I mean these were the questions that everybody wanted to know the answers to. I'm not I'm not suggesting that he gave very satisfactory answers to all of them. Um but yeah, you you have to detach yourself from that. And and, and you're not you're not you're not yourself. You're you're a journalist doing a job.
0: How how do you find that playing out? now in a kind of even wider um remit of the content you know the ideas of greenwashing sports washing you wrote a piece for cyclists really great piece by the way if anyone can track it down a couple of issues ago um about sports washing um whether or not it's something that you know we should be a is it fair to level that at cycling and b if it is what do we kind of make of make of it you're not just dealing with personalities, you're potentially dealing with nation states. And, you know, we all know what happened to Salman Rushdie. So do you ever, is there pressure beyond cycling to not write about certain things in certain ways? And maybe not from, you know, I'm, I'm not say, suggesting that uh, Saudi Arabian embassy is on your case, but perhaps an editor in a newspaper is saying, we don't really have an interest in you running a story that points the finger at something and says actually this might be slightly morally corrupt um, because you know it doesn't doesn't sit well with a uh, lots of other political allegiances we has have as a newspaper does that how you know how's that playing out for for journalists
2: i don't i mean like i i, I certainly it never crossed my mind when writing that piece that it might be in in conflict with you know a- anything in elson cyclist magazine and i didn't have any (laughs) any pressure from um pete the editor or or anybody else to not to not write certain things or to not write about certain people but i think you can write about it in quite a a nuanced and balanced way without making it sort of polemical and because i I i feel that it's not the responsibility i don't think of individual writers or even teams to some extent it's um it's a sports issue and and i i have sympathy for riders who uh, are maybe riding for a team whose sponsor they might not approve of or might have serious misgivings about and i think that's a situation that a lot of people find themselves in in their work working for companies or bosses or owners who whose i don't know politics or ethics they don't they're not not that happy with but what choice do they really have that's not to whitewash the, the issue at all but I, I don't think there's any value in you know the question of the UAE tour for example and UAE Team Emirates I wouldn't lay all the blame for that apparent sports washing at Tadej Pogachar's door because it's not really his responsibility it was interesting speaking to Amnesty International about it because you know they, they said the same thing really that they don't blame riders for signing for teams like UAE or Bahrain or uh, Astana. Um, But they do encourage riders where they can to express any misgivings they have. That's not always easy, though. Um, But they did cite the example of Lewis Hamilton, not not a rider but a Formula One driver, and the way that he's used his platform and his profile to draw attention to um, to certain things, they they commend him for that, and uh, I, I I commend him for that as well. But I don't think every athlete is in the same position that they're able to do it. Unfortunately,
1: yeah, it does make it easier if you're a seven time world champion in that sport and a multi millionaire, rather than a you know a domestique who may be on a one year contract. And is looking at potential retirement afterwards.
2: But it is, it it, it, it does leave you with, you know, the, we're, we're speaking in the week of the UAE Tour, uh, the first World Tour stage race of the year. And, you know, as the camera pans around all these incredible facilities and boasts of, you know, the world's biggest this, that, and the next thing, it does make you feel quite uncomfortable Um because you realise that there have been all these other stage races on last week which were fantastic and entertaining um, and beautiful to watch. Um, not saying there aren't beautiful things about the UAE Tour, but it's not the first World Tour stage race of the year because it's the best race of the year. It's it's that because it can pay the most money. And, um, you know, that leaves a, a pretty bad taste in the mouth, really. There's lots about it, lots about it that I don't, that I don't like and I don't really know what the answer is but we've got to be able to say that haven't we
0: how uh, how fair is it do you think of fans to expect their heroes to kind of lead the way and yeah, you know, this is to parallel with another sport we mentioned earlier tennis big news around Djokovic um, and his eventual uh, interview which they had on the radio for a couple of um, a few days ago last week's on time and it's kind of he leaves himself open to the, the criticism of you have a soapbox, and when you stand on it you should so- only say leading light positive things is that a fair uh, expectation of our sports people
2: um pfft, not really um, not really I, I you know I, I do when somebody talks eloquently and passionately about a subject that they care about, then I applaud that. But I don't expect all of them to have the, the tools to do that. Or, or you know, because it, all, it also, especially with the, the way things are now with social media and so on, you know, unfortunately we see sports people, cyclists included, um being more guarded on those platforms because of the inevitable backlash. Um, so it, there's, there's more incentive to just keep your head down, unfortunately. And that's a shame. It's not the same at all, but it's, it's interesting watching how Chris Froome is repositioning himself slightly as a, as a spokesperson, as, you know, with his, his YouTube channel and his, he's not afraid to air some, some views, not, not controversial views in a, in a wider context, but within cycling, you know, quite noteworthy, time trial bikes and so on, and really sparking a bit of a debate around that.
1: Yeah, and I guess the emphasis is then is always just on us as journalists to continually make make note of these things and to not completely ignore the UAE tour or a grand, grand tour starting in Israel, but to report on it, but also to ask the questions and to highlight the, the concerns, because if you don't do that, then it will continue to happen.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's just, you know, it's not shying away from it. When the Giro started in Israel, that that was a real um something we thought long and hard about how we would cover that and hopefully we got the balance right in terms of we you know, just just hopefully encouraging people to think about it. We assume that the listeners to the podcast are, are very intelligent and can form their own opinions. Um, but we did have one of our listeners was doing a sort of alternative Giro in Palestine at the, while the Giro was starting in Israel and we, we heard some regular dispatches from him just to highlight that there were other things going on and issues that beyond just the Giro and the, the fanfare around the Giro starting in Israel and hopefully people uh, were able to absorb that and think about it
1: So Richard, with. have um had an hour now and we've way over allotted our time with you um but before we go we wanted to ask you a couple of quick fire questions and i'll start with this first one is you've been in the sports cycling for 20 years now you've interviewed the the biggest names in the sport um but what was when was the last time you found yourself a little bit starstruck or out of your depth
2: it's not something i'd want to admit to uh um starstruck not I don't think starstruck, but sometimes you can be not as prepared for an interview as you would have liked to have been, inevitably. Or some somebody says something and you're not you're not quite sure what they're referring to, and it, it, it can throw you off a bit, especially if they pick that up. It wasn't... <laughs> I had a very, very awkward phone interview with Primoz Roglic last week. He was in Tenerife and there was a delay on the line. And I was... I was asking him partly about, you know, his season. And I mean, Ro- Roglic, is, he's, a, he's got a sort of glint in his eye and there's a bit of humour there, but he's sort of deliberately deadpan, I think, a lot of the time. Um, but I I was at, wanting to ask him a lot about Slovenia as well. And so with the interview lurched from kind of, you know, the the standard, what are you expecting from the season to, can you tell me what restaurant I should eat in in Kisovic, where he's from? And it was quite it was quite a transition um and and initially i think he was thrown off a bit by that but he warmed up to it and it was it was fine in the end but there was a moment there where i thought i'm not sure i'd rather have been face to face with him you know because on a on a phone line it's all it's hard to convey the the sort of the the tone that you want really sometimes that was that was like, you know i could feel my cheeks flushing a little bit <laughs>
0: But then the other beauty of a phone line is I can't see that. No, exactly. Exactly.
1: And of all of the, we'll make this the last one, of all of the, the subjects of the books you've written over the years, so you've written about Lamond, Miller, Ben Johnson, as we spoke, Chris Hoy, which is the one that's fascinated you the most as, a, as an individual? Who is, who, who's the one you just could interview and talk about and talk to endlessly? Well, um,
2: so many. I mean, for Sling the Badger, Andy Hamston, really loved talking to him. Um, he was great. But Lamond himself, I mean, Lamond, certainly. Uh, oh, who else? I mean, some of the... I did a book, The Bolt Supremacy, about Usain Bolt and Jamaican sprinters, and I met some just fascinating, brilliant people in Jamaica, um, including a, a doctor who told me all the kind of the gossip again. They're the most interesting people. Paul Coakley, this director sportif at La Vie Claire, was really fascinating once I eventually got got to him. uh was really interesting as well. So he his whole philosophy forms quite a big part of slaying the badger as well. Um, his approach to racing, training as well. Um, I don't know it's very hard to pick one. Andy Hampson certainly the the most fun to speak to i think a nice guy very modest but but very interesting
1: well richard thank you very much for that very insightful look into the cycling world from your perspective as a podcaster and author a journalist and yeah thank you very much for coming on
2: thank you thanks for having me
1: so there we have it richard moore columnist for cyclists cycling podcast host uh, presenter Author of some great books, including The Slay and the Badger, which is particularly of note for me. Um, it was really good to get a little eye into the world of reporting on bike racing, how it's changing, how it's changed.
0: Yeah, well, just another um, inspiring to you and I Guess because that's that's a man, that's a journalist who's really lived a couple of lives already. And also, a stranger, stranger kind of like synergy, symbiosis struck me that... Um, two of the people that Richard Moore's interview you know, mo- most notable and interesting people he's interviewed uh, both have very good stories about really cold hands because you've got Hino in, I'm going to go for the age baston age. I can't remember what race it was, but the age
1: baston age, the infamous uh, snowmageddon which snowmageddon.
0: Was... Yeah. Where like only like 17 riders at the field finished or something insane. And, and Hino said his hands were never the same after that. He couldn't, he didn't have sensation in his right hand.
1: No matter how many Jitan cigarettes he smoked to warm exactly, up, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <just> <laughs>
0: and then Andy Hansen, of course, who uh, whose DS actually had the foresight in the Gavia stage in I'm going to go eighty nine Giro, perhaps, maybe it was eighty eight. It was definitely in the eighties. And his DS had the foresight to go to a ski shop and buy him a little Oakley bobble hat and some Oakleys or some skiing gloves, and he was kind of okay going down the Gavia
1: where loads of other riders i can't remember uh eric eric brown king i think was the one who kind of like just capitulated just being abs- and, and cycled back up yeah
0: yeah no i mean awful awful anyway so yeah um don't don't get cold unless you've got gloves or you're a double r bastard like you know uh
1: let's call an end to this episode now james um it was great to have richard on um as you said he's authored many books that are really good so you should probably buy some and also subscribe to Cyclist Magazine because you'll get a column produced by Richard each month about the pro scene and they are very good they make people like James's life really well uh really easy because he's very good at spelling unlike myself who <laughs> just takes a punt at how to spell stuff like guarantee and restaurant Um uh, <laughs> so yeah um Lindsay, thanks very much for putting that episode together for us. Uh, Again, like, subscribe, tell all of your friends about this podcast and how great it is and why they should listen to it. James, that's it from me. I think that's it from you. And we'll probably just speak again soon. I reckon we will. Just one more little thing. Slaying the Badger is a really good book. It's
0: also a really good ESPN 30 for 30 documentary that's on YouTube for people that can't be asked to read. It's really good. Today's episode is brought to you by GCN+. GCN+, is the place to watch
1: all the best live bike racing and some excellent cycling films too. You can catch all of your favourite monuments, classics, grand tours and much more Live and ad-free on GCN Plus, including Milan-San Remo on Saturday the 19th of March and the Tour of Flanders on Sunday the 3rd of April. As well as the live action, you'll have access to on-demand highlights, replays and unrivaled analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Adam Blythe. Then, after the racing, GCN Plus
0: has a library of over 100 exclusive documentaries exploring the full breadth of the cycling
1: community for you to tune into. All UK listeners to the Cyclist Magazine podcast can currently get 25% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. All you have to do is head to GCN.eu slash cyclist25. That's GCN.eu slash cyclist25.